More local content. Saturday morning coffee. The Reese Boyd Radio Hour on Talk 94.5. Now two full hours. More Reese means more coffee. everybody welcome to another edition of saturday morning coffee the reese boyd radio hour it is august 22nd 2020 and it is 707 on your saturday morning welcome to the program i am reese boyd local attorney here in town with the firm of davis and boyd attorneys at law i'm your host for saturday morning coffee thank you for joining us here on the program. Good to be back with y'all on this Saturday morning. I was out last week. I want to thank um, Liz Calloway for hosting the show for me last week in my absence. Uh, here, in, here at Saturday Morning Coffee, we invite you guys to sit down, pour yourself a cup of your favorite coffee, and join us as we talk about the news, current events, all the crazy things happening in the world around you, all the things that we think you need to know. Here at Saturday Morning Coffee, we're all about rational, limited government, lower taxes, and everything else that we can do to help restrain the crazy politicians and political hijinks going on around you. Because here at Saturday Morning Coffee, we're all about more freedom. More freedom for you and for me and all of us who are we the people. We have a country to save, and it starts right here on the local level, starts right here in the studio. So let's get to it. We invite you to settle in with that cup of coffee and uh, join us on the program here. You can, uh, you can call us, text us, and also tweet us. If you want to call us, you can call us at 843-903-2945. You can also text your comments to the PCRXcomputers.com text line. That number is 843-798-TALK. For those of you out in Swansea, that's 843-798-8255. You can tweet us your comments. That's uh, the Twitter handle for the show is at Reese Boyd. And uh, also email any comments that you may have to ReeseBoydSMC at gmail.com. We got some good comments this week. I'll hopefully have a chance to get to those on today's program. Lastly, if any of you would like to speak to me during normal business hours, many of you have gotten in touch Um at other times because you're not really in the mood for a conversation at seven o'clock on Saturday morning. And we get that. You can reach me at the offices of Davis and Boyd at your convenience. I heard from a couple of you this week. Always great to hear from our listeners. That number is 843-839-9800. Joined here in the studio this morning, as always, by producer extraordinaire, Mr. Glenn Dye. Glenn, how are you? I am good, Reese. How are you this morning? You like that, don't you? Producer I, I, extraordinaire? You're, you're only, yeah, it's your it's it's my handle on your show. It's your handle, dude. Yeah. You are the best, man. You are the best. Thank you. And uh, I've known a few. I've known a few. <laughs> I've known a few, too. I've known a few. <laughs> I just, just leave it right there. Yeah. So, uh, wow, what a week, folks. A lot going on. I do want to thank Liz and Precious. Did you enjoy your time with Liz and Precious last night? Oh, Precious is darling. I, I, it, precious if, is Precious? If Precious was available, you know, I, I, I would consider that dog. That was a sweet dog. Sweet little dog. Beautiful, too. 
Um, so, yeah, we want to thank Liz for pitching in. I was actually on vacation. Love uh, uh, to share a little bit with y'all. I don't know if, how many of you have, have you ever been. Have we talked about the Creeper Trail? Yes. Flynn? Yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah. Virginia well, Creeper. Virginia Creeper. Mm-hmm. And if you have not been, folks, you are uh, missing out. There is a great trail in Virginia. Yeah, I forget how long we've been doing this program, Glenn. We've been, we've been at Over this, a year. Yeah, over a year. We've mm-hmm. been at this for a while. Um, if you have not been to the Virginia Creeper Trail, you would do yourself a favor if you would check it out. It's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, I was on the show Friday morning with Liz, and she said, I have learned that you can never take any advice about biking from Reese Boyd. She's still recovering from her first trip out to the Hulk uh, mountain bike trail here locally, which I perhaps ill-advisedly counseled her would would, would be something she would enjoy. Apparently, I was... I've seen people riding the Hulk, and they don't—they're all not on these expensive mountain bikes. Some of them are out there on like beach just bikes, horsing horse around. Riders. Yeah, yeah, just horsing around. But anyway, it was a traumatic experience from which uh, Liz is still uh, nursing her wounded ego. But we'll uh, we'll get we'll get we'll get to more of that later. But the Virginia Creeper Trail, much more docile trail, and uh, very family friendly. It's a former uh, railroad tra- or railroad. It is uh, a rail trail. You know, rails mm-hmm. to trails. And so it's uh, up in the mountains of Appalachia, up in the Virginia Highlands, just across the Virginia border from North Carolina, just sort of west of Galax, uh, sort of between, very near the town of Damascus. Abington connects uh, Abington, Damascus, and Whitetop of Virginia, which is actually one of the second or third highest mountain peak in Virginia. So you head up to the top of uh, Mount, uh, not Mount Rogers, but uh, Whitetop Mountain, and the shuttle drops you off. You can also ride up the trail if you're particularly energetic. And the, uh, but the shuttle will take you to the top and you ride all the way down. And, and the ride from White Top into Damascus is basically all downhill. You know, Sounds like a great ride to me. Yeah, and so it's almost like having a, an electric bike that doesn't have right. a motor. You know, it's just, as long you as you have brakes. <laughs> you just release the brakes and you go. And it's just a lot of fun. And it, because it's a railroad, there's obviously no real sharp turns and no crazy ups and downs like you have at the Hulk. Right. It's just a very family friendly and you're going through the woods and it's, so it's canopy is, you know, all around you and the forest is all around you and you're basically cool, even though it, you know, maybe a little bit on the warm side out, out in the open, but it's just a great time. We had a good time and I always learn a lot when I travel. So I encourage you guys to check that out and little places to stop along the way and eat. Isn't Virginia creeper a weed that I actually have in my yard here yeah. in South Carolina? Yeah. Okay. You, uh, uh, Virginia creeper is one of those things like kudzu. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that the they vine, tr- a vine. They try and to keep it, it goes forever. Yeah, they yeah. they uh, they try to keep it at bay along the roadside, but it grows like several inches overnight. Wow. So, yeah, it's um that's what it was named after, and uh, we um, enjoyed always our we've we've become regulars at the Virginia creeper trail. We also were up in uh, a couple of other great towns. Uh, went through basically went through the mountains of uh, the Virginia Highlands and Western uh, North Carolina, had a great time and uh, we're in uh, Cherokee, spent the time in Cherokee uh, doing a little bit, a little bit of mountain biking there and, and just doing some camping uh, in, around, uh, around that area, Maggie Valley at some of our little camping halls, had a great time, very relaxing. One of the things I liked about that is we were off the grid, no cell coverage, very little internet. So we were, and, one of the things I learned, I always thought that was a rest for me. But one thing that happened is the kids put the, no more TikTok, the kids put their cell phones down and their personalities just started to 
bubble, yeah. yeah, bubble back up to the surface. It was really a remarkable thing to watch. So, TikTok, TikTok. I do not have that on my phone. I have checked it out, but yeah. because of the government, you know, talking yeah. about banning it, I, I decided it would probably be best to remove it from my phone. Only I, I said, I, my daughter is it, frankly, addicted to it. Let's just be honest. Well, and it I, is. It is interesting. You yeah. see a lot of interesting things. And we try to curtail it. And, of course, we have screen time and all that. And I said, I really can't wait for the president to outlaw this app. <laughs> so I have no re- no choice but to take it off of your phone. And um, and so we've had a little discussion here and there about TikTok. And but, Wish Wish has not been removed, you know, uh, or they haven't yeah. talked anything about Wish. That's mm-hmm. the Chinese Amazon, right? Buying, yeah, yeah. buying site. Yeah. So... Anyway, a lot to uh, talk about, a lot going on. We had the fabulous DNC uh, convention uh, this week. Just absolutely riveting television. Y'all, I hope you had a chance to catch it all. And uh, also want to talk to you about something called the Transition Integrity Project. Had a question on my mind lately. Uh, Is America a racist country? Want to chat a little bit about that, see what y'all think. But a lot to talk about, a lot to cover, much to get to in this episode of Saturday Morning Coffee. Hope y'all will stick with us. I'm Reese Boyd. That's Glenn Dye. It's Saturday Morning Coffee. Don't leave town. Saturday Morning Coffee. Call the show at 843-903-2945. The Reese Boyd Radio Hour returns after these on Talk 94.5. You're listening to the Reese Boyd Radio Hour. Saturday Morning Coffee on Talk 94.5. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not a brain. Well, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, at least at this moment. Knock on the uh, desktop here at WTKN. It's uh, Saturday Morning Coffee, folks. Welcome back to the program. I am Reese Boyd, your host. That means it must be time for another coronavirus update. And uh, we keep looking forward to the day when we don't have coronavirus updates on the program, but we're not quite there yet. The uh, most recent uh, round of press releases from our uh, folks at DHEC and the state government, among them, among the interesting points to note, Labor Day could cause an influx in COVID-19 cases. South Carolina's top epidemiologist warns that's uh, just this week uh, in Columbia. That would be Dr. Linda Bell speaking from the uh, Emergency Preparedness Center in Columbia, indicated that uh, another 
uh, rebound in positive. Of course, numbers have been uh, stabilizing, and for a while we're trailing actually downward. Um, it's been a little bit of a little bit of a roller coaster here the last couple of days, but we had a we had a drop, a significant drop um, over the first week of August, early August, and then we had a, a they, they kicked back up. Uh, Dr. Bell reminds us that another rebound in positive coronavirus cases could occur if residents do not practice safety measures during the Labor Day weekend. Uh, on a conference call with reporters Friday, that would be yesterday, Bell warned that a rebound could mimic those daily case counts South Carolina reported after Memorial Day and the 4th of July, two of the largest increases in disease activity which the state has recorded, that being after the uh, all the beach parties and things you saw on Memorial Day and 4th of July. Public health officials, including myself, continue to have these concerns, but because people go out and celebrate uh, following the uh, COVID-19 protocols is incredibly important. Bell said stressing staying six feet apart, frequently washing hands, and, of course, uh, wearing masks. There are always things we can do. Uh, There are ways that we can do these things much, much more safely than we have in previous holidays. So, your, uh, the folks at DHEC and the emergency preparedness folks uh, encouraging us to engage in uh, safe holiday practices. Before the Memorial Day weekend in late May, South Carolina logged well below COVID, well below 1,000 COVID-19 cases per day, sometimes reporting case counts of only an additional 200 cases uh, daily. But after the holiday weekend, cases in South Carolina again skyrocketed with the state's health agency reporting daily counts of more than 1,000 through the end of June. By the 4th of July weekend, cases once again surged uh, to well above 1,000 cases nearly every day until August 10th. And then again, uh, after August 10th, toward the middle of March, we had a significant drop. But having said that, um, they're predicting another bump after Memorial Day. When we see these gatherings, this again, Dr. Bell, when we see these gatherings, the majority of people are not wearing masks. They're not physically distancing. Those previous experiences give us concern about the upcoming holiday. So keep that in mind, folks, as you get out and celebrate the forthcoming Labor Day holiday, which a little bit more of a celebration this year because of the school schedule that we've adopted a little bit more of the traditional you know i always when we were growing up we most of us went back to school after labor day it's a little bit more of a holiday this year yeah so um so back in the um earlier part of uh the um when did this occur this is another interesting item that the south carolina supreme court as y'all know part of the coronavirus relief that governor mcmaster uh had appropriated was 32 million dollars in spending on private schools that was money that was taken from the federal appropriation uh, earmark for South Carolina um, as part of the CARES Act. And this, this of course, uh, resulted in, in a lawsuit challenging the ability of the estate, uh, the ability of the state to spend its money on private school education. And this coming to us from the state newspaper August 20th, uh, just a couple of days ago, the South Carolina Supreme Court has agreed on Thursday that was Thursday of this week, to hear what could be a landmark case over whether Governor Henry McMaster can legally spend $32 million in COVID-19 federal relief aid on private school tuition grants this school year. Oral arguments in the case scheduled for September 18. 
A key question for the court to decide is whether public money can be used to subsidize private schools in South Carolina. Last month, Governor McMaster was temporarily blocked by Circuit Judge Edgar Dixon from spending money out of his discretionary education account, a total of $48.5 million. Dixon has not yet issued a ruling in the case. The suspension also blocked another round of spending for eight of the state's historically black colleges and universities because many of them are also private. The Supreme Court does not normally accept cases that have been fully that have not been fully decided in the lower courts, but that's a process that could take years. On occasion, the Supreme Court does accept cases of high public interest in what it calls its original jurisdiction. McMaster spokesman, spokesman Brian Sims said, we appreciate the court taking this case because it gets us one step closer to getting these students and families the relief they need. McMaster announced the $32 million spending for students to attend private schools in July. But soon after, McMaster and Palmetto Promise Institute, a conservative think tank, were sued by Thomasina Adams, a retired public educator who lives in Orangeburg County. Adams alleged McMaster's spending out of his one-time education account on private schools violated a South Carolina law which bars public tax dollars from going to religious or other private education institutions. Interestingly enough, we'll be joined uh, later in the program by Oren Smith with Palmetto Promise Institute uh, to talk about the lawsuit. And also as, as an aside uh, at the at the, at the office uh, when I am practicing law and not hosting a radio show here at WTKN, we have been asked to assist uh, with an amicus brief uh, in support of the governor's uh, proposal and his package uh, of uh, aid to assist families with private school and any school, frankly. It's not, it doesn't uh, distinguish, but tuition at any school. So Oren will be on the program in the second hour to talk to us about the litigation and uh, other things uh, that are being done in response to that and what the prognosis may be. So look forward to having him on the show. And um, that, of course, is one of, the, one, of the things, one of the many things that McMaster has done in response to the COVID-19 uh, crisis and, the, and the, the strain that it has put upon our public education system. Many students, of course, being encouraged or, uh, for want of a better term, forced into virtual schooling, either part-time or in some cases full-time. And of course, for many students, virtual schooling just doesn't get it done. Mm. And uh, so McMaster is trying to use the federal CARES money to open the door for more education options uh, for South Carolina families. And frankly, what's the problem? But not everybody agrees. That's why we have lawyers. That's why we have uh, lawsuits and why we have courts. So we'll talk about a little bit more about that. The uh, other uh, COVID-19 thought that I wanted to share during the update is, of course, the numbers do appear to be um, mitigating somewhat, but we, um, we uh, still face a lot of pressure in our uh, daily routine to wear masks. I'm noticing that more and more frequently, and uh, it seems to be an interesting uh, new litmus test that we all face as we go throughout the day trying to figure out when we should wear a mask, when we when we don't need a mask. Sometimes you wear a mask, people look at you funny. Sometimes you... <laughs> well, if you're in your car by yourself, I'm I, one of those guys looking at you funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got a story about that. We're, we're, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into that later in the program. But I, I, um, I passed a woman, and I had a little exchange with her. And anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. 
But it's uh, one thing I did learn during the travels, uh, Glenn, on the vacation was I think I, I, I want to give a shout out to Governor McMaster. And I have not agreed with everything that the governor has done in response right. to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've talked about that on the program. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the governor has done is repeatedly declare a state of emergency. And I question whether or not that's the appropriate uh, use of governor, the governor's authority when the General Assembly hims- itself has said, we think more than 15 days in an emergency situation requires legislative action. But that's a, but for the most part, I think the governor has worked hard to try to keep businesses open and to keep our tourism-based economy as relatively intact as he could by giving business as much latitude as he could. So, um, uh, one of the things I've, um, one of the things I have uh, noticed in my travels in North Carolina, the tourism economy in North Carolina is dead on the ropes. Well, they did, they had some problems as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, quite a few of those towns around Maggie Valley, Cherokee, some of those mountain towns, kind of like, sort of like Gatlinburg, Mm -hmm. Myrtle Beach in the mountain kind of towns. I was amazed at how many shops were just shuttered, yeah. closed. So I think our governor uh, needs uh, a, a, a shout out for his efforts to work with small business, uh, work with small business here on the Grand Strand, but across the state to help us try and keep the doors open because uh, this has just been devastating. Uh, Myrtle Beach, I understand, is 40% down. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even with... Even with a relatively softer hand, I think, from this governor when compared to other governors. It's still been devastating. Yeah. Still been devastating. So that's your coronavirus update, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors with more Saturday morning coffee. I'm Reese Boyd. That's Glenn Dye. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Local news and more. The Reese Boyd Radio Hour is now two full hours. More Reese means more coffee. Coming up next on Talk 94.5. Hi, everybody. It's attorney Reese Boyd, your host for Saturday Morning Coffee, the Reese Boyd Radio Hour here on WTKN. I'm also a practicing attorney with the firm of Davis and Boyd, attorneys at law here in Myrtle Beach. These are certainly trying and uncertain times for individuals, families, and businesses here along the Grand Strand. Please know that our team of professionals at Davis and Boyd stands ready to assist you with all of your personal and business legal needs. So if we can assist you in any way, give us a call at 839-9800. That's Davis and Boyd, Attorneys at Law. Thanks for waking up with Saturday Morning Coffee, the Reese Boyd Radio Hour on Talk 94.5. can keep my hands to myself. Think I just am up, put them out. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Coffee, the Reese Boyd Radio Hour. I am, coincidentally, Reese Boyd. 7.35 on your Saturday morning. And it is Saturday, August 22nd here on 
this edition of Saturday Morning Coffee. Joined here in the studio by producer extraordinaire, Glenn Dye. We had a caller on the phone, Glenn, and... Hey, hung up. They hung up. Yeah, we just had another caller that hung up as well. You guys got to give us just a little bit of time. Yeah, you guys got to be patient with us. busy over here on the board and music and all that stuff. We're a two-man show. We're a two-man show, and we're trying to do a lot. So stick, hang with us. If you dial and you don't get an immediate answer, just hang with us. We'll get to you. We'd love to hear your comments. We'd love to have you uh, chime in on the show. You can call us, of course, at 843-903-2945. You can also text your comments to the PCRXcomputers.com text line. That's 843-798-TALK. 843-798-8255. We've heard from Tim, the car detail guy, on uh, the uh, PCRXcomputers.com text line. Tim checking in this morning. Will checking in down at Coastal Sports. Down in uh, Merle's Inlet. Will, I need some ammo, so uh, be working on my stockpile. I'll swing by. Augie, the golf course guy, checking in. Good morning, guys. Hope y'all are having a great morning. Thanks for tuning in this Saturday morning as we... Try to get your Saturday morning going on the uh, right foot. And a couple of things I wanted to share with you guys when we were talking about the uh, coronavirus uh, update. I, as I mentioned, and this uh, plenty to uh, fodder to throw at this. If you want to talk about it, we could spend the whole show talking about masks it's all over the news. But I thought this was interesting. It's, of course, it's of course the new litmus test. And um, uh, the, uh, one of the interesting mask stories this week was an ex-Navy SEAL. As a matter of fact, not just any ex-Navy SEAL, but the ex-Navy SEAL who shot Osama bin Laden was uh, got into a um, little bit of a tiff with Delta Airlines because he refused to don a mask uh, during the flight as per Delta's instructions, their policy, and he posted a maskless selfie. Ooh, the horror. He posted a maskless selfie, Glenn. From a Delta flight on Wednesday afternoon, <laughs> and uh, it, alongside, he wrote a rather interesting message. I'm not a, and then there's a feline reference. Uh, I'm not a, and uh, said uh, he posted the uh, he posted the the f- posted uh, f- mask. Excuse me, these words are strong. These words are hard. The posted maskless selfie generated an instant backlash from. <laughs> The likes of uh, Alyssa Milano. <laughs> Speaking of feline references, uh, the tweet was deleted, but when he said his wife removed it, and uh, but his contention was that the masks simply were not needed. O'Neill tweeted on Thursday that he had been banned from all future Delta flights. So our poor national hero, uh, Navy SEAL um, Robert O'Neill, who is the gentleman who took care of Osama bin Laden for us, can no longer fly on Delta Airlines flights uh, because he posted a picture of himself without a mask on a Delta flight. Well, you know what Delta stands for, right? What? Don't even let them aboard. (laughs) You know, as a, as a, as a Delta silver medallion (laughs) member, it brings me pain to report these things because I have really enjoyed flying Delta in the past, but They've been real twerps. Uh, there is that same feline reference would be appropriate here, but they've been real twerps about this whole COVID-19 thing. But uh, unfortunately, Robert O'Neill, national hero, former Navy SEAL, the man who got Osama banned from all uh, future Delta flights for a, mes- a maskless selfie, of all things. Uh, 
Interestingly enough, uh, one of the things that I find very curious is what will the world be like if the COVID-19 pandemic ever subsides? Will it ever subside? That is the question of the day. I'm thinking around the end of November. Yeah, I'm thinking the DNC will no longer find it to be an existential threat after uh, after the election. So we'll, But obviously, when the electoral pressure is off and the COVID virus goes away, mysteriously, and again, coincidentally, I'm sure... What will the, um, you know, what will the lasting impacts? There will be many. Mm-hmm. It will be hard to count. There will be so many. One of the things that it could, but obviously life in many ways is simply not going to get back to the, I mean, I tell people every day, I, I yearn for 2019. I miss 2019. But the fact is, folks, we are never going back uh, to 2019. A metaphysical impossibility and uh, not going to happen. And there are many ways that our lives will never be the same. One of the things that I think is not going to be fully reversed anytime soon, probably not within our lifetimes, is this mass egress, outflux uh, from the major cities in the Northeast. This interesting item from the Daily Mail, Manhattan landlords plead with employers to bring office workers back to save businesses that depend on foot traffic. As movers say they are so busy packing residents up to move out of the city that they are turning customers away. So if you're in the moving business in Manhattan, you got a bang up market opportunity. Landlords in Manhattan are pleading with companies to bring workers back into their office, saying that restaurants and shops in commercial districts are in danger of disappearing while people work from home. And of course, that's been happening. It's happening all over, but especially in cities like New York, Chicago, etc., Meanwhile, moving companies in New York say they are too busy, that they are so busy that they are turning customers away. Property owners and managers have been quietly pressing top employers, including Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, and others, to return their workers to downtown offices. I've been really pushing CEOs to bring the people back to the offices. Jeff Blau, the developer behind Hudson Yards Project, told the, uh, the paper, I've been using a little bit of a guilt trip and a little bit of coaxing so far, though, Reaction from employers has been tepid. State coronavirus guidelines, that of course being the New York state coronavirus guidelines, allow for offices to resume operations at up to 50% of maximum capacity. But the foot traffic in the city, just not there. So it'll be interesting to see what New York looks like and other major northeastern cities, uh, metropolitan areas look like uh, five years from now, 10 years from now. Uh, what Chicago looked like 10 years from now. But I think there are lasting seismic shifts that we've experienced here that we will not soon undo. Um, Glenn, I think we've got a caller. Speaking of uh, callers on the call-in line, who is, uh, who's got... Uh, that is Menachem. Menachem. Menachem's on the phone, and he has a legal question, it appears. Good morning, Menachem. How are you? Good morning, uh, Chris and Glenn. I have a specific question for you, uh, uh, Mr. Boyd. Uh, I don't know. I think you are a, a good lawyer, but I don't know if you can answer this constitutional question, but give it a try. I'll give it my uh, best. I'll give it my best shot. Menachem, how about okay. that? Okay. Uh, I don't know if it will apply to federal thing, but definitely to state. You should have what I call the lockdown amendment, whether it's a 26 amendment or just strictly apply to states. Let's let's go with states. Any state, New York, South Carolina, what, whatever, can pass an amendment. They call it freedom from lockdowns. Now, 
the specific thing, a governor or a president can declare a state of emergency and lock the country down or the state for one week if it's really, really a, an emergency, like twice the twice the Spanish flu death or uh, 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 twice as, as much. Now, of course, in that case, people will voluntarily lock themselves down. But let's say he calls a state governor uh, as a power to call for one week or 10 days uh, a lockdown. But then in order to extend it, let's say a week by week, you need a two thirds of the state legislature to approve it. A two thirds of whether, let's say in South Carolina, the House of the state House of Representatives and the state Senate have a, a week later to uh, to have a, a, a vote, and they have to have two thirds in mm-hmm. each chamber to either extend it or to override it. Yeah. Uh, now, if not the first time, uh, maybe by the third week they decide to uh, either comply with the governor. Or to uh, say, well, the state of emergency well, is no longer in effect. Yeah. Well, you, How do Malcolm, you think? Malcolm, I got it. Let me let me cut you off for a second because I've got to go to a break here in just a second. But it's interesting because that is exactly what happened here in South Carolina, and it happened elsewhere. I mean, as far as I know, virtually every governor has some degree of authority to declare emergency measures in place when the public safety of the people of his state or her state require it. Interestingly enough, though, in South Carolina, the, the, the provision provides for a 15-day state of emergency. And what our governor did at the end of that 15 days is he simply declared another 15-day state of emergency. And then another, and then another, and then another, and then another. And finally, the general and, – and so what you get is a revolving door of declarations of 15-day states of emergency. Well, that could go on forever if that's okay. Well, so, under so, my proposal, yeah. after 15 days, the state legislature, but two, uh, two uh, chambers have to either approve it mm-hmm. another 15 days so, or disapprove it. And then once they disapprove it, and I don't care about a veto, I mean, uh, they override his uh, authority, the state governor, and this why you wouldn't have every 15 days like my master and other governors have done. Yeah. You, you, you have a control mechanism to override the governor if you so wish. Yeah, well, I think that's a good point, Menachem. And thanks for the call. I appreciate you uh, chiming in. I think that's an excellent point. And the interesting thing, you know, is the law, frankly, um, I mean, I think any reasonable reading of the law, it says that already. I mean, if it didn't say 15 days, why is that? I mean, why is that term there? You know, and interestingly enough, the General Assembly has said we think the 15 day provision is there because the governor cannot go beyond 15 days without coming to the General Assembly for some kind of more permanent authority. But uh, our Attorney General, Alan Wilson, at least thus far, has sided with the governor and said that the governor has the authority to do this. And so. That's where it stands. You know, whatever the law says is one thing, but what politicians and leaders actually do 
is something else, and folks have to stand up and hold their leaders to account. But, uh, Menachem, that's a great point. Thanks for the phone call. Folks, we've got to take a break for a word from our sponsors, but we'll be right back. Stick around. More Saturday morning coffee to come. I'm Reese Boyd. That's Glenn Dye. Don't leave town. morning coffee the reese boyd radio hour is now two full hours more reese coming up next on talk 94.5 the reese boyd radio hour two full hours on talk everybody welcome back to saturday morning coffee the reese boyd radio hour i am reese boyd your host it is 7 52 on your saturday morning saturday august the 22nd here on saturday morning coffee a little need to breathe for you guys this morning everybody needs to breathe speaking of breathing uh glenn what are you doing for fun today anything good going on this weekend around here you know i want to take a road trip tomorrow um my significant other doesn't know it yet, but <laughs> well, maybe she maybe she knows now. <laughs> the plan is to have some good food this evening. That was my big plan. That's a good part of any plan. Yep, yep. Good food, um, good food, and um, because it's been a really, um, it's been a hard week as far as work for both of us. Yeah. So I, I say let's let's treat ourselves this evening and then maybe take a road trip. You know, I don't know if Flaming Amy's. Um, burrito bar is open up there in wilmington flaming amy's burrito oh my bar gosh if you've never been there I've never been. Uh, they've got like 12 different kinds of salsa on the salsa bar oh, yeah this is a this is a top notch burrito wow um and uh, of course when we go that uh, that far for a burrito mm-hmm. you have to take in whole foods oh know, sure and, and pack a cooler oh yeah and you know make a make a trip of it make um, a trip and also, you know, Wilmington Beach up there. I mean, I just, I kind of want to just get out a little day trip. Somewhere. Sometimes, sometimes it's uh, nice to, uh, you know, changes in latitude, changes mm-hmm. in attitude. attitude. Sometimes it's just nice to put a little ground between you and your homestead. Yeah. And uh, just to give you a fresh uh, perspective on things, when we leave here, or when I leave here, rather, you will remain in the studio, Glenn. You have other shows to tend to. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I leave the studio, I am headed directly up to the northern uh, reaches of the county where we're going to be doing the uh, annual, I won't, maybe not, maybe I should say semi-annual uh, Davis and Boyd Law Firm Canoe Paddle. Oh, really? So we're going to be paddling down the river uh, today for, with other, other folks, attorneys from our office, and uh, having a good time. Looking forward to that. Hopefully the weather will be good. Well, uh, don't forget the sunscreen, 86 today, 20% yeah. chance, and these are going to be isolated uh Showers, showers today yeah uh tomorrow even less hit hit or miss at 85 degrees yeah so, so if i do not come back <laughs> <laughs> uh, look for me up in the uh, upper reaches of the waccamaw and the uh, near the near the uh, state line i'm up there somewhere uh, the last thing i heard was banjo music you know <laughs> uh wear a life preserver yeah will do <laughs> 
And uh, so I hope you guys are uh, enjoying uh, the weekend and will find something to do to get out and enjoy the out of doors in a safe, socially distant manner, of course. And so that we can help keep these uh, COVID outbreak numbers under control. One of the things I have noticed, of course, this week, as you guys have too, I'm sure, is this curious ongoing thing that we have seen for a few days this week called the Democratic National Convention. And, uh, you know, I guess for those of us who are old enough, which you don't have to be that old to remember a real political convention, this to me has just seemed a farce. It has been canned and negative, ugly. Yeah, just ugly, demagogic, uh, overly personal. Well, I think America's tired of it as well. I mean, if you look at the ratings, they're down eh, 15 million from just a few years ago. Um, And people are home. So their their opportunity to watch TV is higher than Radio, if we weren't yeah. in the pandemic. So my thought on it is people are already seeing through the Swiss cheese block that is the Democratic nomination. I hope so, y'all. I really we say on this program that freedom is in the balance, and I really do believe that. I say this every election cycle, <clears throat> but this time I mean it. There is literally no election in our lifetime that has been more important uh, than the election of. 2020 and it is looking to be a race we'll see what happens actually i thought there were elements of joe biden's speech that were not bad Mm. uh, in terms of delivery uh, Mm -hmm. for joe biden it was a pretty strong showing the media is excited of course oh my gosh like they're like he took his first steps yeah that that (laughs) joe biden can read and that he can walk that's impressive you know it reminded me of the cnn the cnn dedicated a whole special to the fact that joe biden could ride a bicycle yeah yeah, you know and i'm like Okay, whatever, guys. Mainstream media. This is an interesting piece from Chris Barron at uh, Political Insider. Mainstream media breathlessly praises Joe Biden's ability to read. (laughs) I thought this was was good. If you woke up this morning not having watched Joe Biden's acceptance speech at the basement DNC convention and turned on the news or to read the papers or scroll through Twitter to see how it went, you'd be treated to a barrage of media praise of Biden and the low-budget production that it capped off. The media is banking on the fact that no undecided voter actually watched the virtual train wreck that was the DNC basement uh, convention. Given how dreadfully low the ratings are, that's actually a pretty good bet. CNN's Amanda Cooper, the woman who once shilled for Jim DeMint and Ted Cruz but found liberal Jesus in the form of a CNN paycheck, found herself emotionally unable to contain herself during the DNC basement festivities. On Twitter, she asked for an honest tally of the number of times the, number of times the DNC uh, proceedings made you cry. <laughs> this was her tweet. <laughs> I need an honest tally from all of you who watched all four nights of the DIM convention telling me the number of times the programming made you cry. Go. That was her tweet. This is from a CNN staffer. This is from a full-time news person employed by CNN not to be outdone the Washington Post's Jen Rubin's Twitter feed looked like a Babylon Bee parody of herself genius poor genius pure genius a home run gorgeous were just a few of the deep thoughts that Rubin shared about the Biden speech so lots to say about the Democratic Convention once one thought I have uh, to summarize is that the only unifying factor is their hatred of Donald Trump but we'll, uh, we'll get to a little more of that after the break. Stick with us, folks. More to come on Saturday Morning Coffee. I'll be right back. Don't leave town. 
Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Coffee, the Reese Boyd Radio Hour. I am Reese Boyd, your host. You're in the bonus second cup hour of Saturday Morning Coffee. Hope that second cup is tasting just as good as the first cup. A lot to talk about here this uh, second hour. We were talking about the riveting Democratic National Convention. The Riveting? Riveting. (laughs) Riveting. That was not good TV. Oh, my gosh. It was awful. It was awful. It was the virtual basement uh, convention. Piped to you live. Actually, it wasn't even live. I mean, it it was virtual, and it wasn't even live. It was canned. 99% 99% of it was canned. It wasn't even real. It was just, and, and the production values were awful. It just, it reeked. It was and, awful. And the Washington Post says that is award-winning television. Yeah, award, award. That's, that's they, what they, they said. Don't, they don't tell you what the awards are. <laughs> but yeah, it's award-winning, all right. Interestingly enough, I don't know how you can walk away from the convention. We were, uh, just before the break, I was talking to you a little piece that was from Christopher Barron at uh, Political Insider. And, you know, some of the things that many, 90% of what they did was just despicable, y'all. I mean, the repeated personal um, efforts to blame the COVID pandemic on the president were just insane. And, of course, consider that the states where folks have fared the worst, the states that have the most deaths, nine out of ten of them are blue states run by Democratic governors. And that and that's just not numbers of deaths where, you know, we're grading on a on a flat curve and, and states with a lot of people like New York are punished. We're, we're talking about deaths as a percentage of the overall population. I mean, they have reeked in their response to this covid pandemic. And the irony, of course, is Andrew Cuomo and others of his ilk out doing victory laps, writing books about the challenges of leadership and how they learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, it makes me want to puke. I mean, he probably single-handedly caused the death of thousands of elderly New York citizens just in that one little aspect of how he Mm -hmm. dealt with the nursing home admission question. Yes, he did. And he's blaming Donald Trump. And and, And now Andrew Cuomo and all Democrats are universally adopting the line that somehow COVID-19 was the president's fault. Oh, I mean, the economy, in, the jobs. Yeah. All this is Trump's fault. And and if you go back and look at how Obama and Biden uh, responded to the swine flu and other epidemics during their, during mm-hmm. their tenure, and it's absurd. Uh, this president has done by far a better job responding to this pandemic than Obama did in dealing, and Biden did dealing with, with prior pandemics it's just been a you know much of this unfortunately we've been dealing with an unknown much of this is beyond our control but when you look at um you know when you look at uh, some of the things that were said you know at the convention for instance they trotted out a um, a young uh, woman illegal alien uh that was deported and trotted her out as uh, uh you know a proof positive of the lack of humanity of this uh, president turns out this of course by from the dailywire.com dnc used deported woman to attack trump she was deported previously under clinton and flagged under obama the deported illegal alien that the dnc used this week to attack donald trump was previously deported by bill clinton was flagged under former D- democratic president barack obama to be deported after she illegally 
re-entered the United States. Alejandra Juarez first snuck into the U.S. in 1998. She was caught at the border and deported to Mexico. The Washington Times reported she quickly snuck back into the U.S., which is a felony, and remained in the shadows until a traffic stop in 2013. Experts said an Obama-era initiative expanding the use of local fingerprint checks to aid deportations likely flagged Ms. Juarez for ICE. That's according to the Washington Times. At that point, the Obama Homeland Security Department had a choice. It could have shown leniency, but instead, the Obama Homeland Security Department reinstated her deportation order from 1998, putting her on the path to deportation that the Trump Homeland Security Department carried out in 2018. So, I mean, it's just raw political demagoguery. It's a bunch of lies. Mm -hmm. It's just a bunch of lies. And the thing that I, you know, back to this article that that, uh, Barron wrote in Political Insider, I don't see how you can look at Biden and see him as anything other than an empty suit. I I agree. You know? Puppet. He's just, I mean, in the obvious question that follows that conclusion, and you know, it's interesting how when you're studying politics, how often the term empty suit comes up. Mm-hmm. And it can be an empty pants suit, I would add. But he's given uh, Donald Trump some really good sound bites to, you know, add to his commercials before the election. I think oh, yeah. they just did, you know, um, Harris going after Biden at the debate yeah. on, um, you know, um, the racism, uh, what was it, the sexual yep. uh, deviances. Of, mm-hmm. So if they just went after that, um, uh, I think those are good sound bites. But also, he, Trump has done more for this economy. Yep. He has tried to protect Americans. Uh, he saved m- literally hundreds of thousands of lives by shutting down China. Absolutely. And Europe. Um, which, which another soundbite where, you know, Biden was putting him down, calling him. And they criticized him. Oh, absolutely. They criticized him when he tried to respond. And now they are blaming (laughs) the entire, it is political theater. It is absurd. And, you know, I don't see how you can come away from this with any conclusion other than the Democratic National Committee is off the rails. I don't know exactly who's in charge, but it's not Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, Barron, in this article that I've uh, been referring to, Barron 2020, uh, excuse me, the Biden 2020 campaign is a mirror image of the Clinton 2016 campaign. Its central theme and the only thing holding the coalition of the aggrieved together is its pure hatred for mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. It did not work for Hillary in 2016, and it will not work for Biden in 2020. Unlike 2016, Trump has a record he can run on, a record of economic success before the pandemic. As you said, Glenn, economy had never been doing better, better. in recorded yeah. history. And and that's what not, Trump had created before the pandemic. And that is not for white America. That is for all America. He did more for the the immigrants, the blacks, the everybody than yeah. anybody else had the lowest unemployment rate in history. Yeah, African-American unemployment at an all-time low since we have been keeping up with that statistic, yep. thanks to this president before yep. the pandemic. And um, in addition to that, he had a record of keeping his promises back to Trump. This is Barron on Trump, record of keeping promises and a record of keeping Americans safe in a dangerous world. All true. Check, check, mm-hmm. check. Mm-hmm. So I just, the to me, the Democratic National Committee Convention, whatever you want to call it, show, freak show from the basement, 
was just a, an absolute farce. Of course, uh, some interesting commentary out there. Uh, F.U. Trump, according to Bette Midler, a uh, real insightful commentary from Hollywood, she said that Trump can never match the power of uh, Biden's speech. Interestingly, absent from the proceedings, Tulsi Gabbard. Gabbard snubbed by the DNC. I was not invited to participate in any way. Hmm. Seems to have a little bit of a, a lump on her shoulders. And uh, Herschel Walker chimed in. Uh, Dems playing the race card way too much. Uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. Uh, we could we could uh, devote a whole show to what's going on with that, folks. And that is absolutely 100% true. Completely agree with Herschel Walker's uh, comments on the uh, uh on the convention, by the way, all you Carolina fans, you remember what uh, um, uh, the uh, what's the difference between? I forgot the joke. Forget well, Carolina Panthers. <laughs> no, no, it's an old um, it, it's an old Carolina Georgia joke, but I can't remember the punchline, so I'm not going to start <laughs> it. John Cusack had some interesting comments. He said uh, the uh, actor John Cusack broken ranks with his fellow left wing lunatics in Hollywood, declaring the DNC basement convention a and i'll say crappy but that's not his word a crappy celebrity filled reality tv convention john cusack tweeted on the fourth and final day of the convention do you think anyone at the dnc entertained the idea in removing a crappy reality tv star president you might want to avoid presenting a slightly less crappy but unmistakable campy kitsch and yes crappy celebrity filled reality tv convention it's showbiz all the time. Rest in peace, America. And I think that, you know, frankly, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have said it quite that way, but that's all that it was. It was cheap, low budget, poorly produced, canned showbiz. It was just crappy. And Harris should stop vetting VPs um, <laughs> until after she, they've won the election. And it was, and exactly, I agree. And it wasn't just a crappy presentation of a virtual convention. It was also nothing but showbiz. It was a it was a proceeding where the truth does not matter. The truth was ignored. And, you know, there used to be a rule in politics, Glenn, that you tended to try to avoid using your opponent's name. Mm-hmm. You avoided ad hominem attacks. You talked about policy and you talked about why your solutions were better. Mm-hmm. You talked about truth. You debated truth. But that era, at least for the DNC, is gone. It's gone, folks. Over. Until somebody else is in charge. And we could debate who is in charge, but not under this leadership. But uh, that's the DNC convention, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back with more Saturday Morning Coffee. I'm Reese Boyd. Don't leave town. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Coffee. I am Reese Boyd, your host. It's 821 on your Saturday morning, Saturday, August 22nd, here on the show. Thanks for sticking with us in the bonus second cup hour of Saturday morning coffee. Hope that second cup is treating you well. What's the coffee? What's the cafe du jour? Oh, should we, monsieur? Juan Valdez is Colombian because Juan, Juan only picks the freshest beans. <laughs> he <sighs> picks them, picks them by hand. Yeah. Puts them in the pouch on yeah. the back of his <laughs> mule. A little basket, little thing. Yeah. Thing of my bobber. Yeah. I, I, I'm surprised that uh, PETA never chimed in on those commercials uh, Attacking, attacking Juan for making that mule haul, all haul those, those heavy beans. Haul those heavy beans down <laughs> off that mountain every day. Uh, Peter would be all over people of the Grand Canyon taking that oh. big fat people down. No, oh, no, man, no, I feel no, sorry. For, I feel sorry for those mules. I That's all too. I'll say. 
you know, I, I hiked out of the Grand Canyon once and I was, this was actually with my wife when we were dating and my mom was on the trip and I had carried a bunch of stuff. I was the pack mule mm-hmm. for the trip. Mm-hmm. And as we came out of the canyon, uh, Glenn, I'd carried, I wanted everybody to be comfortable. So I'd carry, I'd carried air mattresses and various other things. And uh, I'm surprised I didn't have an espresso machine in my backpack. <laughs> but as we climbed out of the canyon, every time we would pass a ranger station, I would leave a gift for the ranger. You know, <laughs> this, <laughs> this ranger gets an air mattress. You know. Lighten the load. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was dying. I was the pack mule. But I do feel sorry for those mules at the Grand Canyon. Um, interesting um, item, folks. We were <clears throat> discussing the, <clears throat> excuse me, the DNC convention, of course, and the thrill show that it was and various reactions to it. One little bit came up in discussion of... Um, of a little uh, motor 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 action in the background there. Yeah, uh, I don't know what that was. I don't know what that was. Uh, a lot of discussion last week about various things and voting and, and preparations for the November election. Now less than ninety days away. Of course, frightening thought. And one thing that caught my attention is a little blurb that I heard about something called the Transition Integrity Project. You heard about the tra- Transition Integrity Project? I have because I know Reese Boyd. Well, there you go. Interestingly enough, many people do not know what the Transition Integrity Project is, and it had escaped my attention until I heard a little blurb about uh, John Podesta. And, of course, anytime I hear John Podesta's name, my ears pop up uh, because you have to keep an eye on people like John Podesta because you can virtually assume that they are never up to any good. And so, you know, when you look up the term democratic hack in the Webster's political dictionary, his pictures there, there's actually yeah. literally a picture of John Podesta there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, the Jamie, what's Jamie's last name running for Senate against uh, Lindsey Graham? Oh, uh, Jamie, Jamie Harrison, Harrison, yeah. uh, former lobbyist under the employ of uh, Podesta. He uh, was employed by the Podesta group, worked for various interests to suborn the Constitution for highly paid compensation, just like any great American should. So anyway, I wanted to uh, uh, learn more about this because John Podesta was involved, and we need to keep an eye on John Podesta. This from USA Today. I don't know how I missed this. Experts held war games on the Trump versus Biden election. They're finding brace for a mess. Again, this from August 6, USA Today. Many states are planning on drastically, diff- drastically different elections this year, and mail-in ballots could be a big game changer. They met virtually on Zoom four days over two weeks in June to hold simulations known in the military and intelligence communities as war games. Very interesting terminology, folks, when you hear about this. Uh, 67 players, many of them surprise, high-profile critics of President Donald Trump, Donaldus Magnus, including law professors, retired military officers, former senior U.S. officials, political strategists, and, uh, surprise, attorneys. Instead of mapping out a geopolitical conflict, the group peered ahead to the November 3rd election, now less than 90 days away, and explored how the race between Trump and Biden could turn into a post-election crisis. John Podesta, former aide to Obama and Bill Clinton's former chief of staff, played Biden. Two outspoken Republican critics of Trump, David Fromm and Bill Kristol, portrayed the president. After gaming out various scenarios, the group said its conclusions were alarming. Alarming, their word. In an election taking place amid a pandemic, 
a recession, rising political polarization, the group found a substantial risk of legal battles, a contested outcome, violent street clashes, and even a constitutional impasse. We assess with a high degree of likelihood that November's election will be marked by a chaotic legal and political landscape, which organized the war games. Uh, the winner may not, and we assess likely will not, be known on election night as officials count mail-in ballots, the report said. The period of uncertainty provides opportunities for an unscrupulous candidate to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the process and set up an unprecedented assault on the outcome. And it is uh, the whole article, the report I've glanced over. It's unsettling in the six weeks since the tabletop exercises. The group's organizers said their fears of a messy outcome have only grown. Last uh, Trump, of course, uh, floated the idea briefly of delaying the election via Twitter, though he was quickly rebuffed by both Democrats and Republicans. Several states look to expand mail-in voting because of the coronavirus pandemic. Trump has repeatedly warned that fraud of fraud suggesting this year's presidential race will be the greatest election disaster in history. He's trying to create as many possible pre-narratives for claiming that the results are not legitimate, said Nils Gilman, who co-founded the Transition Integrity Project last fall, along with Rosa Brooks, professor of law and policy at Georgetown University. He wants to create fear, uncertainty, and doubt so that people feel frozen and paralyzed, and then a man of action, Trump himself, can ride in and seize the day. In its 22-page report, the Transition Integrity Project warned of tactics Trump would deploy to halt the counting of mail-in ballots, lawsuits seeking injunctions, shutting down the U.S. Postal Service, or ordering the censure and sequestration of ballots deemed to be fraudulent. The article goes on and on. I will post a link to it, folks. Don't want to read the whole thing. But suffice it to say that the likelihood of a messy election, I would say, is somewhere between a probability and a near certainty. Has Nancy Pelosi read what you just read? (laughs) It's in USA Today. You would think that they would see that this isn't going to work out for them. Um this mail-in ballot, you know, we've we've have different ideas spread it over two, three days for voting. Yeah, you know, but uh, they don't want anything except the mail-in ballots, and that's the that's their main push right now. You know, of course, we saw trucks taking mailboxes away, and they were yeah. saying that Trump was removing all the mailboxes. Yeah. Blame that on Trump; it's yeah, a conspiracy. It was actually they were replacing mailboxes. Yeah, so just business yeah. as usual, exactly at the post office. Yeah, so. And it's very interesting, folks, because uh, there was, you know, quite a bit of speculation. There are conspiracy rumors abounding on the Internet that suggest what the Transition Integrity Project really is, is the public front for Democratic machinations aimed at establishing a game plan for taking the election Mm -hmm. by whatever means necessary. Exactly. And, and like they're trying to take down the president. Like they're trying to take any down way, the president. Any way possible. And, and the interesting outcome that um, many are speculating about is if they can figure out a way to delay the election results sufficiently, there apparently is a constitutional provision that says the Speaker of the House becomes the president, if even on an interim basis. And so <laughs> can y'all imagine... <laughs> 
somebody waking up one morning and, and being told, uh, I'm Speaker Pelosi, I'm the president, I'm yeah. in charge here. Yeah. I mean, this is really crazy stuff, folks. This is crazy stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, over at PJ Media, um, they've got a piece by Tyler O'Neill that says John Podesta War Games. Uh, the 2020 election suggests Biden might trigger a civil war. I mean, there's crazy lingo out there. Mm-hmm. And with all that's going around us, I mean, I don't want to say we're sitting on a powder keg. Uh, that would be a little bit inflammatory, but we're sitting on a great deal of potential energy. I'll put it that way. So fascinating stuff. We'll, we'll spend more time talking about that as the days progress. Right now, it's time for a commercial break little profit-making motive at work. We'll be right back with more Saturday morning coffee. Orrin Smith will be joining the program. Y'all stick with us. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. I'm Reese Boyd. That's Glenn Dye. Don't leave town. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Saturday morning coffee. The Reese Boyd Radio Hour. It is Saturday, August 22nd, 2020, 835 on your Saturday morning. Thanks for sticking with us in the uh, Bonus second cup hour of Saturday morning coffee. Just before the break, we were talking about the Transition Integrity Project. And it occurs to me, Glenn, one thing that we should observe that I did not say before the break. You know, if you were going to come up with a dastardly plot to contemplate various machinations by which you could countermand the will of the people and undermine an election, uh, you would certainly slap a name on it like transition integrity project you know or or we'll call that double speak you know so anytime anytime the democrats or democrat lobbyists put together a program and they call it the such and such integrity project rest assured that behind the scenes what they're actually doing is laying the groundwork for undermining the integrity of whatever they're studying yeah so and they think that Trump's going to have to be removed from the White House, and he's not going to leave oh, yeah. if he loses. That's you know. the popular narrative oh, on the left, that, that mm. they'll have to be prepared to escort him from the White House, yeah. uh, you know, at gunpoint. And he's going to need the um, post office for his change of address card. Yeah. At, at least he won't, I, I think we can all be comfortable with this, he won't steal the furniture, nope. like like the Clintons. Nope. And, uh, you know, and he won't uh, he won't pop the W off the keyboards like all the Clinton. You know, when when uh, Clinton left all the staffers uh, and after uh, W beat Gore, all the Clinton staffers popped the W off of all the keyboards. That was real helpful. They, they, have they always been that immature? You know, I mean, honestly, I mean, I just want Hillary Clinton to pay for the furniture she stole from the White yeah. House. I don't think she's ever done that. So. It will be very interesting to see what happens, y'all, but I think you need to be aware of that. Keep your eye on it. And I will tell you this, uh, we may not get a chance to fully go into it in the show. We only have two hours. But this mail-in voting epidemic that has been unleashed at the states in response to the coronavirus pandemic is a disaster. It is a disaster. You know, one of the, real quick, I'll share this with you, you know, one of the things the first things that I worked on as a young lawyer, I'd literally just been minted as a lawyer, was helping uh, then-Governor Campbell, working in the governor's office, with a response to the uh, National Voter Registration Act of 19-whatever. And that was the federal legislation that implemented Motor Voter, which made it extremely easy to register to vote. At that point, the discussion was about how easy should it be to become a registered voter and what steps should be in place 
to make sure that everybody who registered to vote is in fact a legitimate qualified elector. Mm -hmm. And Campbell, like a few other governors, very courageously vetoed that act in South Carolina and said, no, we're just not going to do it. Because it should require a little bit of effort to become a registered voter. And voting itself should, it's okay that voting requires a little bit of effort. That helps ensure that the people who are voting are invested and care about the outcome and care about the country. And, and, and you put the steps in place to eliminate fraudulent voting. You're doing us all a favor. You're doing us all a favor. And if you don't get that, that discussion is probably beyond the scope of this show and, and certainly this segment, but we'll talk more about it in the future. But voting, mail-in voting, is not like absentee voting. And the Democratic, the DNC narrative is it's nothing different. That is an absolute, unadulterated lie. Okay? Absentee balloting, a specific voter has to request their specific ballot from their local election commission, which they get, which they can cast in absentee fashion. We've been doing that for years. Mail-in voting is when the state mails out all mass absentee ballots to every registered voter to give them the option of either coming to the polls on election day or mailing in their ballot. And that, of course, assumes that the information that the state has on their rolls is accurate and up to date, which never happens, by the way. I don't know if you've ever worked in a poll, but the list of the umpteen thousand voters who can vote in your precinct is never accurate and never current and never completely up to date. It's a metaphysical impossibility. So mail-in balloting is going to be a disaster. It's going to lead to the very things that are being discussed in this transition integrity, quote unquote, project. And it's going to be exploited. Let's be very candid. It's going to be exploited by the Democrats to try to manipulate the outcome of this election. So be ready. It's idiotic. It is idiotic. Some would call this national suicide. I'm almost there. Um, but let's change gears. Here on the program, we are now joined by Oren Smith with uh, Palmetto Policy Institute talking about the uh, lawsuit that we discussed earlier. One of the COVID responses was an initiative by Governor McMaster to allow uh, schools to be paid to allow COVID-19 CARES Act funding that the state received from the federal government to be utilized by parents to fund the education choices of, uh, of the education selections of their choice. That has now been challenged. So uh, Oren is joining us because uh, Palmetto Policy Institute is one of the uh, defendants in this lawsuit that we've discussed earlier on the program that has been filed. Oren, can you hear me? Yes. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, sir? Doing well. Uh, glad to uh, hear the name Carol Campbell spoken this morning. You and I are proud alumni of the Carol Campbell administration. Yes, and uh, that little motor voter episode was what he basically went out of office on, Orny. We were working on that veto message literally the day he left uh, the state house, and uh, yeah. I always remember yeah, 19, that. 1995, I Yes, think. January yeah. of 95. Always remember that. Quite a, Quite an event. Quite a day. Uh, but, Oren, we're here today to talk about uh, Palmetto Policy Institute, your employer, and uh, tell the folks a little bit about who you are, very briefly, if you would. Yeah, pa Palmetto uh, uh, Promise uh, Institute oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was misspoke. founded. Well, we, we originally were Palmetto Policy uh, Institute, and uh, but there's another organization in the state, 
very fine organization called the South Carolina Policy Council, and uh, there was a lot of confusion. So we decided to just use the same uh, letters, but call it Promise, uh, Palmetto Promise Institute. But we're basically uh, an old-fashioned uh, think tank. We uh, come up with ideas uh, that can be implemented as leg- legislation and as policy for the uh, the state government. And um, nearly every state has one. Uh, North Carolina has two, and now we have two. Uh, so uh, these groups are growing around the country, and it's just a way to come up with uh, pro-liberty, uh, pro-free market opportunity type uh, ideas. Yeah. And as I understand it, we've discussed it, Palmetto Promise has found itself on the receiving end of a lawsuit that relates to these CARES Act funds being utilized for education. Um, and as I understand it, I'll let you set the table, but as I understand it, uh, you know, these uh, challenges that schools face in the, in, in the face of COVID-19 have forced many people into choosing virtual or other options that they don't really like necessarily. So I think the governor's intent there was to give parents these CARES Act funds and let them spend them as the parents deem appropriate for their children. Is that a fair statement? That is that is correct. When uh, the Congress passed the CARES Act, they included uh, lots of provisions, a fund for higher education and a fund for K-12 public education, and then a, a fund that was specifically for the governors to be able to control. It didn't even pass uh, through the appropriations process uh, in the state house, as some of the other CARES Act funds did, and this was just Secretary uh, DeVos that uh, if there's something that can uh, doesn't fit into any other category, uh, if there's need out there, um, then the governors can use these funds for that purpose. And there were there were stipulations yeah. uh, on it, but uh, Governor McMaster said, you know, a couple of things out there that I haven't been able to do anything about, and that is, what about kids that go to private schools, or as we call them in South Carolina law, independent schools, what about kids that go to independent schools that maybe their parents, one of them or both of them lost their job or had their hours cut back and they can't afford to pay the tuition anymore, Uh, and what about if those schools were to go away because of too many parents being faced with that, and then 50,000 students that currently attend independent schools, what if they were to be forced into the public school system uh, all of a sudden because of uh, the, the backlash to sure. that? So a lot of reasons for it, but but one was to provide um, some more choices for uh, parents who had been impacted by uh, COVID-19, and it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's somewhat of a generous program in, in context to South Carolina because we've just never had much school choice here. But compared to, to Florida, which, you know, has like a billion-dollar uh, school choice program, it's very small. The governor allocated $32 million, and uh, if my old Clemson math is, is correct, we're thinking like $6,500 per child in, in a scholarship, and we're thinking uh, that would that would cover about 5,000 uh, students in South Carolina. Yeah, but some apparently have objected. I'm not clear why they're would be an objection, but there has been an objection. We'll get to that. We'll take a quick break. Orrin, can you stick with us through a commercial pause? Be glad to. All right. 
Folks, we're talking to Oren Smith with Palmetto Promise Institute about the CARES Act funds that the governor was trying to make available for our parents. Um, We'll finish that discussion after the break. Y'all stick with us. After these words from our sponsors, we'll be right back. It's Saturday Morning Coffee. If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles, if you've been hearing the same old voice of the same old lies, if you're trying to feel the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. If you got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom, a savior, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. Yes, he is. Chain breaker. Good morning, folks. It's Reese Boy. You're in the final segment of Saturday Morning Coffee. Thanks for sticking with us this Saturday morning, Saturday, August 22nd, 2020. 8.51 on your Saturday morning as we wrap up the program this morning with Oren Smith with Palmetto Promise Institute, talking with Oren about uh, ongoing litigation that has been filed to uh, stop Governor McMaster from being able to dispense CARES Act funds directly to parents for the use uh, educational purposes uh, that they deem appropriate for their children within certain limitations, I'm sure, which we've talked about briefly. But Orrin, uh, what's the uh, what's the status of the litigation and where do you see this? How do you do you have any feeling for how this will be resolved, how quickly the court will move? It's now in the Supreme Court, correct? That is correct. It started off and and uh being a, a South Carolinian and an attorney, this will send off uh, alarms with you immediately, uh, Reese. But uh, somehow, um, the uh, law firm uh, that is run by uh, Senator Brad Hutto, uh, one of the leading uh, Democrats in the state Senate, mm. they were able to obtain a temporary restraining order from a judge in the city of Orangeburg which is the same city in which uh, his firm uh, practices law. And that circuit court judge put a restraining order on it temporarily so that uh, a hearing could be held on whether the program uh, needed to have a more permanent uh, order. So both sides eventually felt that this was a matter for the Supreme Court because the governor is the one being sued primarily uh, Palmetto Promise Institute is also being sued, but the governor is the, the chief target of the lawsuit. So both sides agree that the Supreme Court was the proper venue. So just uh, just yesterday, we, we found out that the Supreme Court has agreed to take the case. So that's where we're headed. Uh, trial date has been set, or our hearing date has been set for September, early September. So we will uh, we will be headed that, that way. Any idea what, and of course, Palmetto Promise uh, will be represented by counsel, but also others are chiming in. I think uh, we're, we'll have amicus briefs that will be filed. So it's, a, it's an important case uh, for the state. Uh, I think that goes without saying. But uh, can you give a little bit of flavor for perhaps of the, of the groups out there that are interested? Are, are parents chiming in? How is that, how is that working? Well, there's there's so many uh, folks that have wanted to be a part of it. Um, there are groups that study school choice 
nationally that have uh, all the research to bring to bear to inform the decision of the judges. There are uh, over 15,000 parents that have uh, indicated by going to a website to indicate their interest in the program, 15,000 parents who have expressed interest uh, in it. Um, members of Congress who um, voted uh, for the CARES Act and understood what was in it uh, are interested. Um, a, a lot, lot of groups that I hope will uh, be you know, truly friends of the court, uh, amicus curiae, and uh, uh, file those briefs and help us as we seek to uh, bring out all the parts of this somewhat obscure part of uh, the law and of the Constitution. Uh, one thing uh, that is interesting about it is the plaintiffs in the case are appealing, in essence, to a part of the South Carolina state Constitution that is no longer there. Yeah. <laughs> the South Carolina Constitution was amended. Amended, yeah. Right, the same year that we uh, we reelected President Nixon, 1972, that same day, the the uh, state of South Carolina voters overwhelmingly amended the state constitution to to tone down some language we had that prevented the state from assisting any private or or uh, religious institution, and uh, significantly changed it to make it uh, easier for us to have things like well tuition grants. So anybody who went to college in South Carolina who went to a private college would have been able to apply for something known as the tuition grants program. You cannot even apply for that if you go to a state college or university. It's a yeah. totally separate fund just for private. So that, the existence of that program right there tells you that the case that is being brought by this group is bogus because the state many, many times does assist students. They don't sure. assist directly institutions but they assist um, students. So that's what the case uh, really turns on, I think, is whether yeah. uh, students are being assisted or whether institutions are being assisted directly, just willy-nilly, you know, operating funds for institutions, yeah. which is not what the tuition what, grants program is and not what this is. Not what this is. Or if uh, we're about out of time, if folks want to get in touch with Palmetto Promise or you, how can they do that? I would say, and this is unique to this issue, uh, we have a website uh, that has all the information about what's going on with this case, and it can be found at myfceducation.org. Uh, of course, there's palmettopromise.org uh, for all of our, our work, but specifically for this issue, uh, in this case, in this program, all the details are at my, myfceducation.org, and we would love to hear from folks who might want to consider applying for this program or to be supportive of us or just have interest in this uh, program. Well, Oren, thank you so much. Thank you for your efforts. Thank you for the efforts of Palmetto Promise. It's an important work. It's an important case. And, of course, uh, my uh, law firm is assisting you with one of the one of the amicus curiae briefs that we've discussed. So we're obviously engaged, and we're uh, this is important to us, and it's uh, an important issue for everybody in the state. And I've come to the conclusion, folks, that education is, it's the new civil rights issue. Thomas Sowell wrote an interesting article in July, which I've never had a chance to discuss on this program, but he said back in July, on 20, July, July 27, that black and minority lives would improve if politicians would support 
charter schools. I think charter schools and school choice generally, I think education is now a national security issue. Uh, the reason we have uh, people marching in the streets right now is because we haven't educated them by and large properly. And, uh, and Condoleezza Rice has said interesting things about this, but I think education is a national security issue, and it is the new uh, civil rights issue. It is the civil rights issue of our time. Kids of all colors should have open education choice, and that includes uh, anything that the governor can do to assist parents in making those uh, decisions on behalf of their children. Folks, let me leave you today. Thanks again, Orrin, with this bit of wisdom from the Proverbs, Trust in the Lord. With all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Folks, that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Have a great week. That's Saturday morning coffee for this week. Y'all be blessed. Have a great Saturday. We'll be back next week. You're listening to the Grease Boyd Radio Hour, Saturday morning coffee on Talk 94.5.